You're going to take us through some examples? Some examples, and we'll see how many we get through, but there's a bunch of examples in in chapter 3 of the Faithful Guide, which is on sort of how arguments can go wrong, uh, mainly, and uh, illustrated from various uh, atheist writings. Now, we've been talking quite a bit today about scientism, Mm -hmm. and a lot of this goes back to famous Scottish philosopher, the uh, 18th century, called David Hume, uh, who famously uh, wrote this. Now, again, this is an exercise in going from someone's flowery language to what are they actually saying and what's, what's the problem with this. He says, um, when we run over libraries, pers- persuaded of these principles that he's been advocating in his book, what havoc must we make if we, if we take in hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for example, i.e. religious metaphysics, um, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? Is there any maths going on here? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matters of fact or existence? No. Commit it to the flames. Let's burn some books. For it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Okay. What is he actually claiming? And think, what might be problematical with that? There are only two types of... uh Things that are either logic or facts, maybe? Facts of what what kind of, what sort of thing are facts here? Facts are just the sort of thing that you can know empirically. So there are empirical facts and there are mathematical, logical structures. And you can know those two things. And... That's all you can know. Anything else? In metaphysics, philosophy, you know, arguments for God, that kind of thing. That's all going to be rubbish because it's not maths, it's not logic, just logic. And it's not empirical, scientific facts. Thumping the table, facts. Just, just do, do everyone see the point that all knowledge, he claims that is valid, that is actual knowledge, is either through mathematics or logics, logic, or through experimental science. Mm. Okay. There is no other knowledge but through this. We saw that our, our hard agnostics did a good stab at trying to hide that they were assuming that in, in arguing for, for hard agnosticism. So what, what would you respond to this what can we tell you, you think? Well, that what? it's self-contradictory. Self-contradictory, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask him the question, what category, which of your categories of knowledge does your claim here about categories of knowledge fall into? Mm. Just logic. Yeah, it's not just—it's not maths, is it? What he's saying here—it's not just logic. Uh, how, do, how does he know this empirically? What sort of 
measurement or observation has he made so that he knows this? It's not through logic or, or math or... No. So, so by his own principles, we should chuck this in the flames mm-hmm. <laughs> as being nothing but sophistry and illusion. It doesn't meet its own standard. So it can't be true. Yeah. But, uh, I, I thought about that, but I also do try and disagree a bit, just because mm-hmm. um, he's mentioning metaphysics, which was religion, and divinity, which is religion. So he doesn't say about any social science, which is... Um, mm-hmm. what be as. Uh, yeah, well, he, only, he gives those as for instances, um, take it hand, any volume, for instance, of divinity or school me- metaphysics, for example. Mm. And there might be other examples. You'd have to work it out from, from the, the positive claim that he's making, really. The positive claim that he's making is you can, uh, you, you can only put trust in things that are, that are known logically, mathematically, or that are known empirically. Anything else, as it says at the end, you know, does it fall into the category of logic or maths? No. Does it fall into the category of experimental reasoning about matters of existence? No. Then we, ha- then we chuck it out. So, of any subject that you care to introduce, the, the discussion would then be, well, does your subject fall in maths or logic? And does it fall under experimental scientific reasoning? And if not, he wants to chuck it out. Okay. Yeah. But I think, uh, if I may add, I mm. think it's, it's interesting to talk about social science because that is, you know, as a science, that is a much later phenomenon. Mm. It didn't exist no, as contemporary to the Hume. But I think your point, though, is, is an important point to consider. Because when you go through the various key persons in social in sociology, for example, there are various ideals of science that you can mm. see there. And one of the first persons being August Comte, mm. which is very much in the same kind of thinking yeah. as this. So he's saying that you know when when you know, for example, studying religion as a sociological subject, well there is no category of religion as such. It's only a function of the physical thing. Mm. It's only a function of other things. Mm. So it tells us maybe about why people are poor, you know, uh, you know the, the poor people have a rich God or whatever. But it doesn't actually tell us anything about, about the reality of their beliefs or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm. so I think the point about social science mm. is very interesting, but it doesn't mm. actually solve this problem. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's he, a good point. Yeah. He was a very influential root of this kind of scientific or yeah. positivistic tradition. Mm-hmm. So Comte was part of the positivists. Uh, A.J. Eyre, if you've come across early 20th century Oxford philosopher A.J. Eyre, who was contemporaneous with C.S. Lewis. Um, and A.J. Eyre's book, Language, Truth and Logic... Uh, is very much following down this line. But then, of course, if, if you will go on studying social sociology, social anthropology, you know, those kind of subjects, you will come across different people, and some of them would very much mm. disagree with this, and would have a much more open attitude mm. towards knowledge. But I, I think this is a very important uh, insight. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm going to skip over a little video I had there, because we talked quite a lot about scientism, 
Indeed is. The major problem here is it's a self-contradiction. Uh, it doesn't get worse in philosophy than being self-contradictory. Uh, that is game over for your position once it's been shown to be self-contradictory. Um, here's a Richard Dawkins uh, example. Um, I'll, I'll read this to you. This is from, um, mainly from what Dawkins argues in his book Climbing Mount Improbable, which is about the, the process of evolution. He draws this analogy of the process of evolution building all these different complex life forms to trying to climb a mountain that he calls Mount Improbable. And he says, one face of the mountain is just a sheer mountain face. And there's no way that you can leap to the top in one, one jump. You, you can't get there in, in one go. But what if around the back of the mountain there was a trail, a, a smooth, gradual path of steps... Each step is, is easily doable, and each step is an advantage, an improvement over the step before. So natural selection can select for that step because it's an advantage. And so over a long time, the process of, of mutation and natural selection can get you to the top of Mount Improbable. And people may look at the things that evolution has, has built and say, good grief, you know, that's so complicated. How could that come about without design? But that's because they're just looking at the sheer cliff face and they're not thinking about the possibility of this, the possibility of this gradual route around the back, as it were. Um, and he distinguishes between, we'll come on to that in a moment, but he also distinguishes between objects that are not designed but that at first glance kind of look a bit like they are. As if you look up into the sky and you see a cloud that looks a bit like a horse or a dragon or something. And he calls such objects designoid. It's designoid. It, it superficially looks like it might be designed. And he actually illustrates this with a, there's a hillside um, that if you look at it from the right angle, it looks like the profile of the face of one of the Kennedys in America, you know, the president Jeff Kennedy and his brothers, the Kennedys. And it does look like the, the outline of, of one of the Kennedys. Uh, but he says, once you've been told, you can just see a slight resemblance to either John or Robert Kennedy. But some people don't see it, and it's certainly easy to believe that the resemblance is accidental. This hillside just happens accidentally to look a bit like the Kennedys from the right angle. And then he contrasts this designoid hillside with the president's heads that are carved into Mount Rushmore. Uh, a picture of Mount Rushmore there for you. Which he says are obviously not accidental. <laughs> okay? They have design written all over them. So then Dawkins asserts that, that biological organisms are at most, at best, designoid rather than actually designed. Okay. And he says, designoid objects looked designed, so much so that some people, probably alas, most people, think that they are designed. Because it just looks that way to them. Think about Swinburne's principle of credulity. These people are wrong. The true explanation, Darwinian natural selection, is very different. Okay, so he's introduced a distinction. It says some things look 
superficially look a bit designed. And here's an illustration of what I mean. This, this hillside. That when someone says, look at that hillside from this angle. It, doesn't it look a bit like President Kennedy? And you go, oh yeah. And some people go, what? Okay. And then he says, and people look at biological organisms and they are fooled into thinking they're designed because they, they look so obviously designed to them that the majority of people have this overwhelming impression that they're designed. But they're wrong. They're being fooled. It's, it's because these things are just designoid. Like the, like the hillside. Not like Mount Rushmore. If they were like, you know, if, if biological things were like Mount Rushmore, that would be a different kettle of fish, wouldn't it? But they're, they're just designoid. What do you think Dawkins is, is, is doing here? With the way that he's kind of setting up and using this distinction between design and designoid in his argument. Looking design can't really be designed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you notice do you notice any any sort of vagueness or equivocation, any double meaning that that worms its way in here? And and any shift in the meaning of the crucial terms. So he introduces the term designoid, he illustrates it with this hillside, looks a bit like the Kennedy. Once you've been told you can just see a slight resemblance, but some people don't see it, and it's easy to believe that this resemblance, this appearance of design, is accidental. That's what a designoid thing is. It's something that superficially looks designed, but it's actually easy to believe it's not designed. Do you know certainly that the hillside that looks designed is is, not? It's not. It just superficially. But it's pretty obvious, really, that it's not designed. Mm -hmm. In comparison to Mount Rushmore, which which obviously is designed. Mm -hmm. But then he says, let's now apply these distinctions to biology. People look at biological things... And the majority of people are so overwhelmingly impressed with the obviousness of the idea that these things are designed, but they're wrong. Actually, these things are designoid. Actually, these things are only superficially looking like they're designed, but are actually really pretty obviously not designed. But if biological things were actually things that are, that are only superficially look like they're designed and are pretty obviously not designed, then why on earth do the majority of people have this overwhelming impression that they really are obviously designed? And what are the criteria? <laughs> yeah, so the actual... Dawkins' original definition of designoid is of something undesigned with the superficial appearance of design, 
And then later, Dawkins wants to convince us that although some biological objects give such a strong appearance of design that most people intuitively think they really are designed, they're actually designoid. So there's, a, there's actually an equivocation, a shift in the meaning of the term. He moves from meaning, designoid meaning, things that look a bit like they might be designed, but on closer inspection obviously are not, to saying that designer deploys, apl applies to things that give every appearance of being designed, but are not. <laughs> so he could actually have said, following his, his argument, that even Mark Rushmore... Yeah, yeah. It. But, yes, why not say, you know, the overwhelming majority of people have a really strong impression that those president's heads in Mount Rushmore are the product of design. But actually they're wrong, and the real, you know, they're only designoid. Then we say, well, hang on a minute, that designoid, as the term, as, as you've defined it, when you introduce it, clearly doesn't apply to that. Any more than it clearly applies to biological organisms. <laughs> you know? So he equivocates over the meaning of the, over the term. There's got to be a series of advantages all the way, back to climbing Mount Improbable. It says, okay, to, a, to get a feather from nothing would be very, very unlikely, just on one leap, as it were, by random mutation. But what about getting it gradually? What about getting it gradually? And he says, there's got to be a series of advantages all the way. If you have a series of slight advantages, then natural selection could work on it, and you could get it bit by bit. If you can't think of one then that's your problem, not natural selection's problem. Natural selection, well, I suppose that is a sort of matter of faith on my part. Since the, th you know, since the theory is so coherent and powerful. Okay, so he has the point. Okay, it's very unlikely to do it all in one. If it were possible to get there by a series of incremental steps, all of which are advantageous, each of which is easily within reach of the next one, then evolution by natural selection could explain it. Well, but why think that that is the explanation? And what if you say, but it seems pretty improbable to me that there could be a series, such a series that all just coincidentally happens to be smoothly within reach of that process all the way from the bottom to the top. You say, well, that, you know, that's not natural selection problem, that's your problem. <laughs> and you say, but why are you so confident about that? He says, well, I have, I have faith. And here, of course, he doesn't mean uh, I have a well-grounded trust based upon certain... You know, it seems to be more, I have blind faith. Um, he does say the theory is coherent and powerful. I, if it were true, it would explain a lot. But why... why you know, it would organise a lot of knowledge and so on, but his actual confidence in that process, that gradual slope being there, um, isn't because he's discovered the slope. Um, indeed, he says, um, however daunting the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled 
how does Dawkins know those graded ramps can be found without having found them? Because he doesn't, he doesn't point, here is the series of steps. Um, he says, he says, without stirring from our chair, without doing any science, without stirring from our chair, we can see that it must be so, because nothing except gradual accumulation could in principle do the job of explaining that apparent design. Yeah. All the time. That's right, that's good. Um, could you give an example of the irreducible complexity in the series? I, I read about it as mm. uh, using the, people using the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. then it's like, yeah, but you have graduation of, you know, yeah, yeah. dark sensors. And, you know, yeah. Do you have an example? Um, so a, a light sensitive spot connected to a brain capable of interpreting that as either being light or not light coming in. Okay, <laughs> uh, the very basis of, of you might be able to ev evolve a more complicated eye from a basis of having some kind of sense of light. But how do you have a sense of light without a brain capable of interpreting those signals, without a source of those signals? Um, what point would be a brain capable of interpreting the signals correctly if you didn't have the signals coming in? What's the point of the signals coming in if you don't have a brain into So you've got more than one thing that have to work together to get the advantage at the basis of sight, even. Um, uh, so those kind of examples. And, and Dawkins says, yes, you can't. It would be very improbable to think they just happened to all come together like this. They were talking about feathers working and so on. Um, he says there are lots of things, but actually they can be cobbled together gradually by a series of steps which must, we know must exist. How do you know they exist? Show me one. I, know I, I can't show you one, I just know it from my armchair because the only alternative explanation would be design. Actually, is, is what he's saying. So this gradual accumulation by natural selection is the only process capable of explaining away the appearance of design. <laughs> so then the eye is actually one of those. Yeah, it's it's more than irreducibly complex, mm. but it has a, it has an irreducibly complex core, as the terminology would say. Um, but it's got other stuff on top of that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, to, to very briefly end, um, whatever you make of those kind of design arguments, the, the point here about Dawkins' interaction with it is that he begs the question against the argument. If you say, these things look like they're designed, he'll say, I know, but they're only designoid. And you say, well, how do you explain them? 
It couldn't just happen all in one. He says, no, but maybe it all happens gradually. And you say, well, maybe, but why think that that is a plausible explanation? Show me how it could happen gradually. He says, oh, I don't have to. I can see from my armchair that it must have happened gradually by purely naturalistic forces because that's the only possible explanation. And you say, well, no, it's not because design's a possible explanation. What you're really saying is that's the only possible explanation once I have assumed that it's not designed. How do, does he know it's not designed? Because he knows evolution can explain it. How does he know evolution explains it? Because he knows it's not designed. <laughs> yeah. So it's a circular argument. You know. That's not the same thing as proving the intelligent design argument, but it is to say this is a really bad response to the intelligent design argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think now we have kind of come to the uh, end of this uh, um, time we have.